when uh, Jerry was finished reading from Psalm 14, I wanted to cry out, but withheld myself. It is fulfilled, for salvation has indeed come out of Zion in Jesus, the Messiah. All right, chapter 3, we're going to uh, we'll be looking at 19 through 21, but I want to keep that back in its context, uh, starting in verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word, and yet we recognize that our minds, as finite and as touched by sin as they are, often struggle to understand, struggle to believe that which is found there. And so we ask that your spirit would illuminate our minds so that we could grasp the meaning of your scriptures, and that in grasping them that we would believe that they speak truthfully, honestly, accurately, that we might humble ourselves uh, before you as the one true God, true Savior. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> Just to kind of remind you that, you know, last week we talked about some reasons why uh, most commentators, and myself included, think that these words shouldn't be in quotation marks, but these are most likely uh, the statements by John in light of what Jesus has said to Nicodemus in verses 1 through 15. Okay? Uh, that's an area that we can disagree on because it's not exactly clear from the text which it ought to be. But uh, I gave you some reasons. Let's keep that in mind. We're continuing with that line of reasoning that has gone on in verses 16 through 18. There's this big word I read about recently, and I read about this word because I was reading an article on mental health in America and the problem of helping the mentally ill in America. And I should have gone on to dictionary.com and hit how to pronounce this word because it's a word I've never heard ever. I've only seen it in print, and so I don't know exactly how to pronounce this. And so don't laugh at me if I get it wrong. If you're the one person here who knows this word. Anoskenosa. How does that sound? That's, that's, a, that's an everyday kind of word. Anoskenosa. And what it means is lack of insight. And one of the the problems that plague many people who are mentally ill is that lack of insight that they don't even recognize the fact that they have a problem. This is true often with people, with, particularly with schizophrenia, uh, bipolar disorder. In other words, 
they have nothing by which to gauge normal but themselves, and so they think themselves normal. And so when people talk to them about their real problems, they tend to think that the other person has the problem. They lack, ac- they lack accurate insight into their own condition. And as a result of that lack of insight, first of all, they think there's nothing wrong with them. Second of all, they don't partake in the treatment that is necessary for them to function more properly within society. Think about that for a moment. Last week, we were talking about God's great love, talking about God's great gift in his only begotten son, as well talking about the great need of humanity in that it was already standing condemned before the throne of God. And in light of that, we have this question that pops up. Why is it that more people who have this great need don't receive the great gift? What goes wrong? And a large part of it is that lack of insight. They don't even recognize that something is wrong. And that's largely what this text that we're looking at this morning is about, that lack of spiritual insight. There is a spiritual blindness that goes on. It's not a denial. That's not the same thing, refusing to accept there's something wrong. But this is a not seeing that there's something wrong. Our big idea this morning is that the light reveals all that is good and bad. Let's start with Jesus. Let's start with what this text says about Jesus. We see that the light reveals God's truth and righteousness. John returns to the themes of light and darkness that he began in chapter 1, and we're going to see continue to unfold uh, later on in the ministry of Jesus when he proclaims himself to be the light of the world. But he returns to these themes to explain the ineffectiveness, apparently, of evangelism. Why is it that Nicodemus, for instance, has not yet come to faith? What is going on with Nicodemus? What is going on with everyone else? And John declares here that the light has come into the world. He uses this other designation for Jesus. It's almost like he keeps piling them up. Okay, because we've seen Jesus declaring himself to be uh, the Son of Man. Jesus declares himself essentially to be the uh, Jacob's Ladder. He, is, he declares himself to be the new temple. We see that John is declaring him to be, or Nathaniel, putting the words in Nathaniel's mouth, to be the Messiah. He's the Son of God. He's the only begotten Son of God. And so all of these designations for Jesus keep piling up. And this is yet another one, the light. He returns to this idea of Jesus as light. And we have to recognize that while the light of general revelation exists, it is true, but we also recognize from places like Romans 1 that it is insufficient. We need more light. I'm one of those people, age, that started to catch up with me. I'm getting nearsighted. And so... One of my problems is I need more light to read. So we installed more light into our kitchen. The light that we had was insufficient. The light of creation is insufficient to lead people to a saving knowledge of God. It's good light, but it's not enough light. And so the light has, the light of the world has to come in. 
there's almost like a difference, so to speak, of people, uh, I was trying to ponder this on my bed this morning. Maybe this is not so good. Who knows? <laughs> but we see by light within the building. It's, it's a source of light. It's not natural light. But we can't necessarily see what's outside. We need there to be sun to see what's outside. And so general revelation sort of helps us to function within the confines of a building, for instance. It helps us to function, uh, you know, with, in terms of keeping our cars maintained, learning how to do math, uh, all, all of those kinds of things. Living in, in, within the context of the world. We have enough light to, to be able to do that, to understand the laws of gravity, the laws of physics, and other things like this. But general revelation does not help us to live with God. And so we need, like, the sunlight to see the bigger picture that goes beyond the little room of our own closed system that we kind of build in our worldview, to look at the bigger picture, to see the greatness of God and his glory. And so we've considered this before when we were in chapter 1, and we brought out Hebrews 1, and there we considered that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. And so he radiates, he shines forth with the glory of God. It's not just that he's light, but this light is actually the glory of God. In thinking about this, D.A. Carson has noted that as the light of the world, Jesus is the revelation of God and the objectification of divine holiness and purity. And that last part of it is, I think, particularly important as we make this, as we consider these things, and we'll get back to it. But what this means is, is that Jesus, first off, perfectly reveals or exegetes, to think of John 1, 14. He exegetes or explains the Father. He reflects that heavenly splendor that is of God. But not only that, D.A. Carson wants us to remember that he perfectly adheres to and reveals God's holiness and his purity. If we want to know what the law, fulfillment of the law ought to look like, look at Jesus. Because he perfectly kept the law. He was perfectly in, uh, you know, aligned with his own moral standards precisely because those moral standards are a reflection of his character. And so his character, his person, reveals God's holiness and perfection and, mor and moral purity as well. He flashes out obedience in the incarnation. Jesus is not just another prophet, but his message and his life line up with his standards. Think of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament. Isaiah, where we're studying in community group. Isaiah 6, he cries out, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips and live amongst a people of unclean lips. One of the great prophets of the Old Testament, but he recognized his sinfulness. Jesus makes no such confessions in the Gospels. In fact, he says, Which of you convicts me of sin? crickets. Perfectly lived in obedience to God, revealing God's glorious character. Jesus, the Jesus that we receive is the light, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of Man. John declares earlier in chapter 1 that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. 
from Christ, we receive not only grace, but we are intended to also receive truth and holiness. Or in other words, not just pardon, but also purity. The Jesus by whose righteousness we are declared to be righteous or justified is also going to be in that process of making us righteous, however imperfectly in this life, but finally and fully and perfectly in the life that is to come. And so we receive not just pardon, but also transforming grace as well from the hand of Jesus. And so the salvation Jesus came to bring is more than pardon, but also purification and renewal. And so as the light, Jesus perfectly reveals God's, perfectly reveals God's truth and righteousness to the world. So what's wrong? What's the problem? Sinners hate the light, fearing that which it reveals. Indeed. If Jesus is the light by which we see God in salvation, why aren't more saved? John declares it. Here is, and I don't really like this translation, verse 19. This is the judgment. It should be more, this is the verdict. Both of those words are within the semantic range of the the word krinos. This is the verdict. People loved the darkness. It's a question of what their hearts love. And John says, their hearts love and want the darkness. They want ignorance. They want sin. They do not want the light. In fact, it's, it's sort of scandalous almost. Because that word that is used of God loved the world, agape, is used here of people loved darkness. That's a great love in a bad direction. It's not just looking for love in all the wrong places, folks. It's, having a, it's loving all the wrong things, all the wrong people. Sinners want the darkness. People love the darkness. And the sense we see unfolding here is, is consistent what we see with Romans 1. Everything that is to be known about God is evident through creation, and yet it says people suppress the truth with their unrighteousness. And so it's not an intellectual problem, it's a spiritual problem. It's not that we in this room who have faith in Christ are smarter than anyone else, but that Jesus has addressed our spiritual problem. Why do they love the darkness? They love the cover that the darkness provides in their pursuit of life outside of Christ. John says that because their works were evil, this is the logic of John and Jesus. These people don't want to be seen. They don't want their works to be seen because their works are worthless. He continues, everyone who does, this this word talks about Planning. This just talks about undertaking to do worthless things. And so their life is spent 
with a great undertaking in their minds. From God's perspective, a worthless undertaking. They're pursuing life, seeking security, seeking satisfaction apart from Christ, and it leads them to dangerous and worthless places. It's present tense. In other words, this is what they are continually doing. I cannot help but remind it of Genesis 6. Before the flood comes, the reason for the flood was people were, con- were always and continually doing evil. It was a world in which it seemed that Noah was the only upright man and the world was consumed by the pursuit of ungodliness. That's the image that we have to have of people who are outside of Christ, regardless of whether they look that way or not. They're pursuing worthless things. They hate the light and do not come to the light. They live with this great fear of exposure. Think of cockroaches for a second. The light comes on. They flee. Most people don't see the vast majority of cockroaches in their home because they hide from the light. And that is a man outside of Jesus. When the light comes near, he runs and hides. Because the light not only reveals their sin, but that word uh, exposes can also mean rebuke. It can mean convict. It can mean correct their sin. We see this in places like John 8. When He, the Spirit, comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Okay, That's the same word that we have here, expose. It's also used in Revelation chapter 3. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. And so it's not just that their sin gets seen, but also because of Jesus, who is the light, who is righteous, their sin is also corrected and rebuked. And they want no part of that. In other words, they love their sin. They don't want to part with it. And so when Jesus comes near, they are allergic to Him. They want to run away because He calls them to turn from their practice of sin. Indeed. Pride, which is the foundation of all sin, works both in licentiousness and in legalism. It works in licentiousness with the idea of, I don't want you or anyone else, and particularly God, to tell me how to live. And so there are some who, they're their own standard. Their pride makes them their own standard for how they ought to live. And so they, they resist and reject God's authority on how they should live. The woman at the well. Chapter 4. We're going to talk a lot about her. But there's also people like Nicodemus. Their pride shows up in this way of, I don't want to need Jesus. I'm going to make it on my own, by golly. And so their pride shows up in religious nature. You look at them and they look morally upright. They look pure. They look good. You'd look at Nicodemus and you'd say this thing, but he wasn't in Christ. His legalism drove him to say that Jesus was a great teacher, 
but not that Jesus was his Savior, at least not yet. Nicodemus is the person that, that drives this, the occasion of this. He was, as I said, a religious man. And so we have to remember from Romans 14 that whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And so his obedience proceeded from something besides faith, most likely fear and, or, and pride, and therefore was not true righteousness, but it was sin. In her book, I think it's a her, I don't know, Flannery O'Connor. Him or her? It's a her. Okay, see, I don't read enough Flannery O'Connor. I don't know these things. In her book, Wise Blood, one of the characters says this about another character. There was a deep, black, wordless, wordless conviction in him that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. That is what we call the Pharisee. That is the person that Jesus brings the woes down upon. Tim Keller talks about this in his book, The Prodigal God. In the same way, religious people commonly live very moral lives, but their goal is to get leverage over God to control Him, to put Him in a position where they think He owes them. Therefore, despite all of their ethical fastidiousness and piety, they are actually rebelling against his authority. And so you see, the person who loves darkness doesn't always look bad. Sometimes they look really good. And we have to keep that in mind as we ponder this. So, Those who are outside of Christ are as if they are those who are allergic to light. Oh, to, oh, how horrible it would be to be one of those poor souls who suffers from one of the forms of photoallergy. People who can't go outside. They can go out for a few minutes if they, if they take their medication and they put lots of, you know, 80 block on themselves. But any more than a few minutes outside and their body begin, their skin begins to blister and to swell and to burn and they have to seek refuge inside. There's some that can't even have lights on inside. They're so allergic to the light. That is the man outside of Christ. What's nothing to do with the light? Due to their darkened understanding, they lack insight into their spiritual sickness. The movie, O Brother, Where Art Thou, is a fountain of spiritual knowledge. <laughs> Indeed it is. Early on in the movie, after they have uh, escaped from prison, they sought refuge among one of Pete's relatives, who, as it turns out, turns them in because he's a good-for-nothing good kind of guy. And so they're, they've escaped and they're hiding in the, in the forest. And Pete recognizes that Ulysses Everett McGill has stolen one of his relative's things. And begins this discussion about, you stole from my relative, but he turned us in. You didn't know that yet. <laughs> and he responds something, well, it doesn't matter because he turned us in. And what Pete says, that doesn't make any sense. And then Everett makes this profound statement. Pete, it's a fool that looks for logic 
in the chambers of the human heart. When they have darkened understanding, they don't make sense. It may make sense to them, just as it made sense to Everett. His logic made perfect sense. Doesn't matter he didn't know this guy was going to turn them in. It was okay for him to steal from him. There's a logic that makes sense, that seems right to a man, but it only leads to death. So, as the light, sinners do not love Jesus, who reveals and rebukes the sin that they love. Let's get to the last part of this. Saints love the light, which reveals good works. This is a hard sentence to figure out in some sense, because... And here's, here's the rub, I get not the rub, but here, here's why it's hard. Because what we just talked about is why people don't come to faith, we make the assumption, the wrong assumption, that this next sentence, this last sentence, is why people come to faith. And that's not what it's about. This is, that last sentence is about what people who have come to faith look like. It's about their relationship to the light post-conversion. Do you understand that distinction? This is not why they come to faith, but this is why they live since they have come to faith. In other words, he is speaking about those who have already been born again and who have already believed in Christ. Not talking about how they come to believe in Christ. If you say it's how, then you get into very dangerous things like work salvation. Not going there, not this morning, not ever. But these people are like moths to a flame. They're attracted to the light. In fact, last night in my house, before I went to bed, I was walking past a lamp before I turned it off, and there was a little moth. He wasn't there very long. Okay? I don't like moths flying about my house. But this person, John says, does what is true. Now that's a really odd kind of phrase for us. Does what is true. This is an idiom that the Hebrews had for someone who is faithful. But it means that they live by the truth that is revealed by God as their creator and their redeemer. And so the person who does the truth is one who lives in light of what God reveals. This only happens by faith. This can only happen for those who are united to Christ already. These are people who are not afraid of the light, but actually they come, it means, you know, that idea of they come to the light, that present tense, just as the unbeliever, as the sinner, hates the light and runs from the light. The Christian keeps going to the light. He abides, in a sense, in the light. This light reveals his works have been carried out in God. In other words, his works have been produced by the work of God in him. First of all, this work, this word um, reveals is different from the one exposes. 
This is one that we see in 1 Corinthians 3. Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. And so it has this idea of the light reveals, just like in 1 Corinthians 3, it's the fire. Here it's the light. The light will reveal the source of the good works that these people have done. And that source is ultimately God. We see this. Because it is an overflow of our union with Christ. John 15. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And so what is being said here in chapter 3 is consistent with what Jesus says in the upper room in chapter 15. The source, the ultimate source of the truly good works are because of their united with Christ. And He is at work in them by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul talks about this in part in Galatians 2. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. And so we see there that Paul is talking about the indwelling Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we see that the life he lives now, he's living by faith in the Son of God who, who dwells in him. And so the good things that Paul is doing are traced back to the Holy Spirit at work in Paul. Now we need to be careful. This is where a verse like Philippians 2, verse 13 comes really in handy. For it is God who works in you both to will and work for his good pleasure. There are some who want to basically say that my good works are completely the work of God, meaning that I don't choose them. But what Philippians 2 is saying, the Spirit works in me. He works in me in such a way that I do will. I make choices. And, and when he works in me, I choose to will, to choose and to do the works that God has purposed for me, according to his good purpose. And so we're not completely passive in this. We make choices, but we recognize that behind those choices is the God who works in us. Okay? That's what this is about. This is really what's, what's going on in John 3. These people have been doing good things, but it is because God has been working in them first to embrace those good things. So true obedience, though it is imperfect, comes from within, not outside of us. It's not something that's coerced from an outward agent, but it's something that begins from inside as the Spirit works within us to accomplish these things. But we recognize, as I mentioned, that our obedience now is imperfect. We still stumble. We still fall. What happens when we do? 1 John 1, But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, 
We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And so when we stumble and fall, we continue to go to the light that we might receive ongoing forgiveness and purification for our sin. In other words, Christians aren't pigs. What happens when a pig falls into the mud? The pig is happy. He's in his natural element. He's rolling around. He's enjoying himself. He doesn't say, oh man, I just got dirty. I need to take a bath. But when we, unless we're at one of those mud runs, which I can't comprehend, but okay. (laughs) But even when we're done with the mud run, that shower feels really good. That's a Christian. Though they may be dirtied by their own sin, that shower, that, that going to Christ to receive forgiveness feels good. It feels right. Whereas the unbeliever runs from that, doesn't want to be exposed for what he is, the Christian says, thank you for reminding me how much I need you. And takes the bath. So as a result, Christ receives praise and glory, not just for the pardon of sin, but also for the good works that we do. This week was a strange week. I don't know why I did this, but I decided on Spotify, I went through, I had a Steve Camp hankering. Some of you probably don't even know who Steve Camp is, but he used to sing Christian music back in the 80s and 90s. And oh my, some of that was really dated in terms of the guitar sound. <clears throat> it, won't be, it might be a while before I listen to Steve Camp again. But there's this, this one song, and I used to have it on a tape that I made years ago. It was a worship tape I put together, and I put it in my car, listen to it. And this one phrase is, I call you Lord, but I must confess that I'm a stranger to your holiness. There are times we feel that way. Just because we've come into the light doesn't mean that we're all together and perfect and we're not still prone towards sin. In fact, we sang about that and come thou fount every blessing. Prone to wander, Lord, I fear it. Prone to leave the God I love. We wrestle with that. Jesus hasn't taken that away yet. One day he will. When we find that we have wandered, there's always a way back because of Christ. So if you're one of those people who's been struggling and you, you know you, sin has, seems to have gained the upper hand in your life, there's always a way back because of Christ. Don't fear the light. Return to the light and he will cleanse us from all our sin. And so John here reveals two ways of living, with both of them with respect or related to the light. Those who are outside of Christ hate the light because they hate God's truth, they hate God's righteousness. They lack insight into their great need and therefore continually reject God's great gift of His Son. They love their ignorance and their sin, thinking them far superior to God's revelation. In Jesus Christ. Those who have been born born again, on the other hand, 
who have received Christ as he is presented in the gospel are united to him and therefore love the light. They come to the light even with their lack of insight in order to gain insight. God works in them and through them so that they live these faithful lives which include seeking the light when they have sinned. Which of these two sounds more like you? Have you seen your great need? Have you received God's great gift? In your lack of insight, are you asking God to grant you insight? Let's pray. Father, sometimes it's hard for us to grasp these words because they can sound so harsh when we think of those who are outside of Christ. They don't resemble, we think, our neighbor next door, our relative, our friend at work. And yet, your word is true. Sometimes we lack insight about the ones that we care about and love about. Love. Help us to receive this insight this morning about ourselves and about others that we might more profoundly see our need of Jesus as well as their need of Jesus. Father, help us to lovingly communicate some of these things to people that we know. To gently help them to gain insight about their true spiritual condition. By making known, in a sense, how we struggle with our own spiritual condition. Help us to come in humility and love with those who need to know. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.